supposed to uh, settle down. We had a, a 9 o'clock service, uh, 75 people uh, join as new members. They, they came yesterday on Saturday. Yet the church goes through history, it has its problems, the Roman Empire killing them, of course, uh, the barbarian invasions, the uh, Ottoman Turks. Christians today, we suffer because of the 405 and Mulholland Bridge, but it, it was a shut down uh, yesterday, but they found their way up here. And it's fun as we we're taking a look and celebrating this question of, does anything ever slow down? And how do you find joy in tough situations? Like that story of uh, the older gentleman was pulling into the parking lot at Trader Joe's and there was a spot. And all of a sudden, some young guy in a younger car jumped in front of him and took it. And the young guy jumped out and said, Pops, you got to be young and fast to do that. And the old guy just kept backing up and crushed the car. And he says, you got to be old and rich to do that, I tell you. But... Well, how do you find joy? And you know me as a pastor, I'll stand up here and say, always be joyful in all things. But you know, if you ask Carol and my family, is that always true? And sometimes uh, you find out uh, family members know you quite well. And if you don't believe that, watch this. Good morning, brothers and sisters, uh, both here in church and those watching on TV and online. Our reading today is Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 29. Uh, there it is. Uh, for to you, uh, it has been granted for Christ's sake. Uh, sweetheart, I'm not done yet. <laughs> not only are we to believe in him, but also uh, to suffer. For his sake. You have to forgive the occasional difficulties today. As we are shorthanded. And uh, my wife uh, has graciously offered to help us out in the broadcast booth. <laughs> All right. Uh, Let's jump in, shall we? According to the scripture, we are called not just to believe in him, but also to suffer. Uh, how many of you are suffering today? I know I am. But we are to find joy in our suffering. Even though we do not understand, uh, we are not to complain about them. Oh, we are to wear them as a badge of honor. Uh, we are to praise God for them. Uh, brothers and sisters, you know I do not like to talk about myself in here in the pulpit. But I had an interesting thing uh, happen to me recently. Uh, just last night, uh, uh, my wife and I had a bit of a disagreement. Was I hurt? Was I in pain? No. Because 
Our love is deeper than that. And I know as a sinner saved by grace, I, I have to exalt in my tribulations. I have to thank God for my down. I have to suffer for his sake. Uh, sometimes it's hard to see the good that comes from suffering. Uh, sweetheart, what did you just do? Uh, please don't. I, I personally, I'm fortunate. Uh, my marriage has never been a burden. Uh, uh, my marriage has been a, a shelter from the storm. Uh, in closing, uh, I want to say that uh, when you're suffering for Christ's sake, uh, he will carry you along uh, and lift you up. Uh, he will carry your burdens so that you can find the joy that you seek. Uh, let us pray. So I just gave the sermon. If the ushers will come forward at this time, uh, great celebrating together. Well, it is really true that in life that we always say we should look at the positive side of things, but it's so, so difficult. If there was any person who was ever born who had a right to bring a complaint against heaven for life being unfair, it was Saul of Tarsus. Saul was raised a wealthy child, one of the greatest educations of that time under Gamaliel. He's being groomed for the number one spot in the corporation as a young man he blew out of the starting blocks of his career so fast. He had extradition power to go to other countries and arrest people that even King Herod did not have from the Roman Empire. And everything was going great until he met Jesus, literally. On the road to Damascus, and everything he had been living for was destroyed. Not only did he lose this well-funded, crafted future he had, not only did he lose all of his family, his friends so hated him now, they took vows they would not eat until they killed him. He was beat so many times, one time we find out he's lying in his own pool of blood, they thought he was dead. At the end of his life, the church was so afraid to be around him because he's just this magnet for firestorms that he ends up being executed with just a few friends by him. And what does Paul say about life? Because he was doing the right thing, this happens to him. An early Latin scholar summarized Philippians by calling it summa epistole, gadeo, gadet. The summary of the letter, I rejoice, so you rejoice. 16 times, Paul will in these little four chapters, while he's in prison, use the word charis, the Greek word for joy. And what we find out is that in the triumvirate of feeling good, feeling good means if it happened to you, you want it again. There are really three legs. There's pleasure, it's physical. There is happiness, which is mental, or in a relationship, things go the way you want. And then there's joy, but that's spiritual. And the difference is you and I can control the first two, but not the third. We can control pleasure. 
I can take you down here to Krispy Kreme with a hot cup of coffee, and you know there's a God of love right on the spot right there. You can sometimes control happiness, that things work out the way you wanted. But C.S. Lewis, who was, of course, an agnostic uh, through World War I, brilliant mind, a professor at Cambridge, when he converts to Christianity and becomes the great defender of the faith, he will say he was surprised by joy, that by finding Christ, that a joy came in the midst of terrible suffering in his life that you could not explain. And one of the places, if you go to the mountains, go up to Mammoth or somewhere, get above Timberline, in that harsh environment, some of the most delicate, beautiful flowers you'll ever see grow. And some of the most sweet joy that you and I have come grow in some of the weirdest, most violent places. And one of those is in the garden of suffering. How can you have joy in suffering? Isn't by definition those are an oxymoron together? Not according to Paul. Because Paul, we create the environment for joy to grow. And suffering creates, first of all, it produces a heart of gratefulness. When you're in suffering, you really sit down and take stock. You do your own inventory of what to be grateful for and not. Second of all, it's only in suffering that you can get a mind of understanding. The end game becomes very clear when you're in suffering, not when things are going great. And also, finally, not only a sense of a grateful heart and an understanding mind, but deep relationships. You will never have the closeness that you long to have with people unless you share in their suffering with them. Now, this is not a theology of masochism. Don't understand me. Like, go out and hurt yourself for Jesus. Go ahead, go do it. Make yourself miserable. That must be a holy thing. That's not at all what Paul is saying. But what he's saying is in those situations, you and I choose. If I, and it's dangerous for God to let us go through suffering. Because we either break in his direction and trust him more, or the final rebellion can come. If I put in my hand a piece of wet clay and an ice cube, put it under the heat lamp, one of them melts, the other bakes hard. And some people in suffering have learned how to melt and they become fluid and to find this joy. And other people have become so hardened. And Paul had a right to be hardened and he melted into the joy of Christ. If you've got your Bible, turn with me uh, over to the first chapter again on page 953 and take a, a look at this just a little bit closer. We're going to uh, do this uh, expository, you know, it's where you read every verse of uh, the letter of the book. I told you before, once when I was speaking at a college retreat, the young collegian introduced me, he said, Mark Brewer, he's a great suppository preacher, but this is, expository is very different here, but first chapter, verse one. Paul and Timothy, doulos servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the bishops, episcopat is the Greek, and diaconus, the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy. Here it starts. And every one of my prayers for you all, because of your sharing in the gospel from, from the first day until now. And I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the euanglios, the good news, the gospel. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And what he's saying there is that Jesus is yearning for them through him. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is the best 
So the day of Christ you will be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Now where is Paul at when he's writing this? Until we really understand the context. Well, we know he's writing to the Philippians. We know that on his second missionary journey, which was about 1,500 miles, it took three years, he, about 49 to 51 AD, those years, he traveled. He came to Philippi. He had the vision of the young Greek boy to come over, and the gospel goes to Europe. We know what goes on in Philippi, in Philippi and we'll take a look at it here from the book of Acts. We know he's in prison. We know that he plans to go to see the Philippians and sends different delegations. And we know he's in danger of his very life. There are three imprisonments that Paul goes through that would be candidates. One, at the end of his missionary journeys, remember when he's arrested, he's at Caesarea on the Mediterranean in Israel there under King Herod. He was in prison in Ephesus. It was his longest ministry. They started to riot and almost killed him and put him in prison there. But probably Rome is what I think. Remember at Rome, at the end of the book of Acts, he's under house arrest. He's appealed to Caesar. And he has what is called Liberta Custodia under the Latin house arrest. People can come and see him, but he's still arrested to them. And so he probably this time writes to them. So he's in prison and he's writing to his beloved church and he says, here is my prayer for you. That you will on the day of Christ cash in. That on that day, you will be holy and blameless, filled with your love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. The fruit of the Spirit, only the Holy Spirit can grow in you. Do you look at your life that way? That's where it's heading. There is a day coming. It's going to be more real than us sitting here or you watching online. And what will matter in a twinkling of an eye is how much our love and joy and peace, our new members as we come together, that's the very purpose of this church. The jobs that you have, the places that you go to, the very purpose of life is learning how to, to grow into those areas. And sometimes, you know, we very easily forget and mistake the places that we're at in that. So as he writes to them, look what he goes on and says here. So he is arrested for doing the right thing. Verse 12. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole the word is praetorian guard, and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters have been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. So Paul is writing to them, and the first thing that you find out in suffering, what to be grateful for. And Paul realizes God can do more with Paul in prison than Paul on the outside, and he never would have thought of that. First of all, he's changed. Who's the Praetorian Guard? They're the personal bodyguard of Caesar. They're like the special forces of Rome. And Paul is such a threat, they have one chained to him for eight-hour shifts, and then they change. Paul says the entire Praetorian Guard, because they all take turns being chained to him. Can you imagine when they change guards? Paul thought, where did I leave off last? <laughs> Talk about a captive audience. And he says and a lot of the brethren have been able to become much more bold. They watched Paul get beat whipped, stoned, and through his swollen, bloody eyes, Christ and Paul said, there's nothing that you can do to me that will make me quit loving you and shut up. When you go through suffering, and I don't say this lightly, they are watching. And when you go through tough times, rather than just saying, what's wrong in a wine and cheese party, what's going on with this, but a sense, remember, when they see you do that, other Christians say, I could do that. 
And right now, America, we have been so blessed as a church. We have such freedoms and we have such wealth and affluence. We are the richest country in the history of this planet. And the American church, believe it or not, is the wealthiest church in the history of this planet. By the way, 80% of money for missions overseas comes from America. Did you know that? I think one of the reasons God hasn't judged America more is because the American church funds missions overseas to the degree it does. But someday, if God in his plan works like he has the last uh, eternity, we're going to go through tough times. These are candy times. I mean tough times. And when they come through that, when you and I have learned how in tough times to say, man, this hurts, this stinks, but God can use it. That will be more powerful than ever than we convincing people that life is just glorious and lollipop and cotton candy when you give your life to Jesus. Again, this is not a masochistic theology. This is not go out and try to be miserable today. Misery is coming your way. Jesus never said, go forth and make yourself unhappy. What he said was, what we all pray together, the Lord's Prayer, we say, Lord, deliver us from evil. What we really mean is, deliver us from pain. We don't want a heavenly surgeon. We don't want a heavenly internist. We want a heavenly anesthesiologist. The trouble, the nice thing uh, about anesthesia uh, is, of course, it takes away pain. But, you know, the bad thing, it also takes away pleasure. I remember I had a date, sophomore in high school, I went to the dentist, got the old Novocaine up, and this girl that I longed to go out with went out to it, and afterwards I kissed her goodnight for maybe 10 minutes, never felt a thing. <laughs> I know her face was very slobbered on, but even though that on your face, you can't move it anymore? Bad analogy, keep moving on. So the whole point is, <laughs> some of the pain we go through in life is because God is making it right. And just setting a broken bone hurts. It's not because the doctor's mad at you. They're helping you. Sometimes turning direction, it's pain, because the old nature doesn't want to die. And by the way, God isn't here to train or tease your old nature. He's here to kill it. But your new nature, the one that's formed after Christ, is trying to live, and that's painful. But a lot of the pain is because we are in a fallen world. And as C.S. Lewis said in The Surprise by Joy, The Problem of Pain, the 50-cent word is theodicy, the justice of God. How can a loving God allow what he allows? He said, God whispers to us in our pleasure. Isn't that true? When life is good and children laughing and hugging you and you hear great music and you see beautiful things or your team wins, you go, ah, life is good. And God speaks to us in our conscience. Do the right thing. By the way, your conscience never tells you what is right. It just tells you do the right thing. That's why we feel guilty over the things we shouldn't feel guilty, and we don't feel any guilt over the things that we should. And part of the Christian growth is learning what to laugh at and what to weep at. But God yells at us in pain. You can't ignore pain. It is, as Augustine said, the flag of truth in the rebel fortress of rebellion, that something is wrong. That's why pain. That's why God, in pain, our physical bodies. And the autonomic nervous system, the reason you move so fast. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you hurt yourself and it doesn't hurt yet, but you know it's going to? Like you cut yourself and you think, well, this is really going to hurt. And it does. He knows we're so slow, that's why when you grab something hot, if you didn't have those nerve endings, you'd go, does anybody smell anything? <laughs> but instead you move back. Well, why doesn't God do that with our bodies, I always ask. 
Why if every time when you're lusting after the wrong person, why don't your eyes go, ow, 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 ow? Why don't when you try to tell rumors about stuff, your lips swell shut? Because it would change your behavior, but it would never change your character. And so God has given us this freedom, and Paul is saying in the sense, when you go through times of suffering, I thank the Lord of what you're going through. God is using this and encouraging others. He is using it at times, don't write the Lord short. And then look what he says in verse 18. Oh, by the way, the people preaching Christ falsely, they were the legalists. They were saying you had to be circumcised, and you had to still obey the law, but Jesus died for you. And they were doing that just to bug Paul because he was in prison. And Paul wants to get out and say, no, 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 you can't earn this. It's God's love. But he says, well, hey, but at least they're preaching Jesus. And how often do you and I get all upset because we can't control the microphone, and rather than saying, God can use even that. And so he, there's a lot of great truths in a lot of religions, a lot of the faiths. Our Buddhist and our Hindu, our Jewish and our Muslim friends, they have a lot of great truths in that. And God can use the truths in those as spiritual compasses to point them towards Christ for people that are tuned to that. But then he says in 18, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. There it is again. For I know that through your prayers with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted as always in my body, whether in life or in death. Wow, hold it. Paul's is in prison. He goes, I know that through your prayers, and notice how the order he has. God confines himself to prayer. And Paul knows that the Holy Spirit will have them pray in the right way. And he says, this is the prayer that I will be delivered. And what does he mean by deliverance? Getting out of jail? No. That Christ will be honored in his body. That he won't compromise and duck out at the last. 21, this is Paul's great creed. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer, though. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, in the French, bon voyage, the good departure, and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I'm convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. So not only does suffering get our, an understanding of gratefulness that we have it, and we so acclimate to the blessings of God, don't we? Wise man said that it's generally true to make people forgetful of what they owe God for any blessing is they should receive that blessing on a continual basis, unquote. Richard Watley, what he said was saying was that you so get used to that, and then you expect that. And you and I get complaining when God changed that. You know, I love Chili's Restaurant. I think it's an anointed restaurant. I really do. But I went to Ruth Chris's the other day. Chili stinks. I just want to tell you that. I love walking on Santa Monica, that was great. But after walking over on Oahu, Santa Monica stinks. And we get so used to this thing, and we just adjust to it. And God sometimes takes it away, not because he's mad at us or angry, but because we're getting warped in the process. And what Paul is saying is, 
that in that sense of being able to release and to focus on the Lord and the real game that's going on. Did a retirement invocation for somebody as some time ago. Why do they have preachers come and pray at these things all the time? It's just interesting to me. But he's a believer, and this guy is mega successful. And afterwards, he came up to me and he said, Pastor, how come they never told me when you get to the top, there's nothing there? I mean, the guy's got uber wealth. He's got more plaques than you could find walls to put on. He's a great humanitarian. But he's saying, and game's over for him. He's retired now. He's saying, there's nothing here. What is this all about? Paul says, for me, to live is Christ. To die, that's even better. Not because he's suicidal. How would you fill that in? For me to live is blank. Is it my family? Is it finding love? Is it money? Is it traveling? Is it adventures? Is it becoming successful? To die is what? Well, it's the end of everything. By the way, to live it for Christ is not, Paul's not against family. It enriches family. He's not against success. It harnesses success. He's not against experience. It brings experience. But the point is, death comes for all of us, and someday when we stand before the Lord that fast, the only thing that's going to matter, as we said, is how much, and that's my prayer, Paul says for you, that you'll be holy and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's when I cash in on that day. And you know, someday, when I stand before the Lord, he, I'm gonna give an account for you. I know, it bums me out too. And you know what? He's not gonna ask how big our budget was, how many people are attending, how famous we were. He's gonna ask how much more you've grown in the image of Christ because of our ministry together. Here's the bad news. He's gonna ask the same thing of you about me. Yeah, I'd be bummed out too. <laughs> we are called to live life together. Not a mesh to some cult, but sharing, letting people get close enough, even though you've been hurt before. And it's in that, it's in suffering that very often we finally say, help me. The ministry of receiving is so much harder than the ministry of giving. Only one time did Jesus say to any of his disciples, you don't do this, the deal is over. And it's when he came to wash Peter's feet, and Peter said, I'll never let you wash my feet. And he said, Simon, if I don't wash you, I have no part in you. And of course, Simon said, well, it's my feet, my hands, my head. And he's saying, no, you're clean off. You're not getting the picture. And isn't it hard to ask for help at times? Suffering is a chance to say, I need some help from the Lord and from others. And not only does it give us an understanding of the end game, it also kind of filters out the faults from the true. Aesop, you know Aesop's fables? He said this in the fourth century. This is a great line. People applaud the imitation and hiss at the real thing, unquote. He looked around at his fellow Greeks and he was saying, they, the imitation joy that is out there, they applaud, but the real thing that they reject. And you and I in a steady diet get that way. And so he continues on in verse 27. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I am absent and hear about you, I know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. This is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Read that again. For he has... 
and this is a double adverb, graciously granted to you, he's speaking to the Philippians, the privilege of not only believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Since you having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now here I still have. Paul does not say that to all of his churches. He says to the Philippians, God so trusts you, God so trusts you, you have been given a privilege of suffering for his namesake. Not for your sake, for his namesake. Every employee, employer, whoever she is, the CEO, knows there are some employees you can trust to get the job done. Every commanding officer will tell you they'll know which one of their troops they can trust to hang tough. Every coach will know which athlete, not when the crowds are applauding, will be the one you can give the ball to. And in the same way, in using sports analogies, we get down to the five-yard line of the football game, about ready to score, and we raise our hand and say, Coach, take me out. And God goes, we were so close. Come out. And I don't mean of life. I mean out of that struggle. He's a gracious and he's an understanding God, but he thinks we were so close if you would have hung, and hind tough is not just belligerently standing there, but in saying yielded to me and seeing the things that I can do. Why does he say this to the Philippians? Last passage. Turn with me over to the book of Acts, to the 16th chapter. It's on page 901 in your pew Bible. It's interesting this thing about being committed to each other. So joy can come from suffering because it gives us a grateful heart, it gives us an understanding, and it gives us deep relationships. You know, more people are uh, living together in America than in uh, any time in recorded history rather than marrying. And John Hopkins has been doing a fascinating study on this. It used to be that if you lived together before you married, your odds were five times greater you would divorce. That's not necessarily so now, but it's still greater odds. And here's what John Hopkins comes up with, that they say, quote, high autonomy and low commitment is more difficult to switch to than high commitment and low autonomy when exposed. Well, what they mean is, when you have high autonomy, this is me and you, and I have a real low commitment. Marriage is where you step across and you say, I have a high commitment and you have no autonomy, I mean low autonomy. <laughs> and men and women live together and they say, females see cohabitation as a precursor to marriage, but males see it as a replacement of marriage. Girls live together thinking they can get them to the altar. Boys live with girls so they can say, no need for the altar. And in relationships, when you have a commitment, even in the tough times, as friends, as co-employees, of churches working together, even when we disagree together. And Paul shows this, look in Acts 16. So he's come to Philippi, Philippi, and they arrest him as he cast this demon out of this girl that was a fortune teller, and they're losing money, and they were ticked at him. 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. A pause. you got to see how crazy this is. The prisons weren't our prisons. They were a lot of times just holes in the ground, almost catacombish, and they're chained in there, and they're in there for what? For healing a girl and preaching Christ. And everybody else is they're wondering, will I ever get to trial? Most of them just died in prison. They never made a trial. When I get there, they're going to kill me. They're all worried. And Paul and Silas are in there. All right, you over here. Swing low, sweet chariot. You, kumbaya. Let's sing it together. 
And these, they're thinking, what is this guy's Meshuggah? I don't know if they knew Hebrew or not, but are they crazy? 26. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains fell off, were unfastened. Pause. There's two reasons you can be crucified as a Roman. Paul will not be crucified. He'll be beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. Either attempting the assassination of Caesar, a Roman citizen could be crucified, or falling asleep on watch. That's the setting. So there's earthquake, all the chains are off. He sees the doors are open, 27. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword for a quick death and was about to kill himself since he supposed the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them outside and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, join the new members class and tithe. No. <laughs> I wish they said, said that, but they didn't. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At that same hour of the night, he took them, washed their wounds. He and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up to the house and set food before them. He and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. That's Paul's, he has two converts when he comes to Europe. The first one, Lydia, who is a wealthy woman, a dyer of purple, and a Roman jailer. And you see, God, the extreme wealth and the extreme poor, across racial, across economic, the church are all people. And the beauty of this is when you and I go through tough times. I've told you before, when I've gone on to oncology wards with people with cancer, I as a pastor can have these beautiful little prayers and talk to them. Somebody else comes in with cancer, bang, there's a bonding and a trust. That's why it's funny, women is getting going into delivery. You ever notice how worthless the husbands are? And how much more other women can say, you'll be all right, oh, okay. I remember when some girl told Carolyn that with the birth of Vanessa. I'd been telling her that for months, but she never listened to me. You know, by the way, it never hurt me one time. But as you go through suffering together, there's a sense of that. When you, someone has lost their job, and you've lost your job, and they say, it'll be all right, there is a closeness in that. And what we're preparing for is this incredible joy that is waiting for us. Soren Kierkegaard said, when there is no danger... There's only the dead calm seas and everything is favorable to Christianity. It's all too easy to confuse an admirer with true followers. The admirer can be under the delusion that the position he takes is the true one when all he is doing is playing it safe, unquote. See what he's saying. As long as your life is going great, Kierkegaard says, don't kid yourself. You don't really know your beliefs when things are going well. It's when it is tough. Then you can know you. And one of the most powerful things to know is God's forgiveness through you to others that have hurt you and to yourself. Dostoevsky in his great novel, Crime and Punishment, has this beautiful written little episode. In a sense, there was this fight going on and Raskolnikov had killed this old broker's wife for the money and he was put into prison. And in prison he, in a way that only Dostoevsky can describe, 
Looked at how life is unfair, and it, was, it hadn't been for the revolution, this wouldn't be true, and how other people are wrong, and he hadn't done anything, it was an accident. And a girl by the name of Sonia keeps coming to him and seeing him every day, and she keeps being kind to him, and he's angry at her because he feels so guilty. And finally, one day, she breaks through to him and talks about God's love in this sense, and he says, quote, he finally knew he was not who he was and who he was going to be, unquote. And in this beautiful way that this prisoner is now more free on the inside because he's finally forgiven himself. And when you and I, when we go through tough times, it's not God punishing in the sense of judging us. There will be judgment, no doubt. We're in a broken, tough world. God will yank our chain to get our attention, but the moment we can say, no, he loves me. I love that great parable, a Danish parable of the gentleman who died and went to heaven, and he asked St. Peter if before he went to heaven if he could see what hell was like. And St. Peter said, well, it's kind of unusual, we'll let you, and so he took him to hell, and they're in a great dining hall, like a Scandinavian hall. He looks in, and hears all this moaning and weeping, and he looks in through the windows, and there are these ugly, emaciated people just yelling, and in front of them there's this wonderful food. They have one hand tied behind their back, and the other they have a foot-long spoon, and they can't get the food off of the table into their mouth, so they're forever starving, and he says, take me away from here. So when he gets to heaven, and there are the great kingdom hall, he hears laughing and joy and singing, and he looks in, and there are these well-fed, celebrating people, and they too had a hand tied behind their back and a foot-long spoon next to each other, and they could never fed themselves, but what they were doing was feeding the person next to them. Parable? You want joy in your life? Give it to others. Therefore Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As we go out this next week, the joy of the Lord is our strength. He'll give it. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that you have given us your love and your life. We thank you, God, that you don't pretend that life isn't difficult, and Lord, we don't make light of the tears and the betrayals the sorrow, the brokenness in this world. But God, we thank you. We know that this is not how you made the world and that, Lord, you're not leaving it this way and that we are called at this time to be your agents of hope and love and joy, sharing with others even and before your son returns. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us this joy and that, God, we would understand a richness of serving next to each other. And now, Lord, as we come to you with our tithes and our offerings, We thank you, Lord. Help it bless those that need medicine and food and clothes. Help the good news of Christ to go forth. And may Christ himself receive the joy that we trusted him. For his sake we pray, amen.